Hello and welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sex based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex Based Rights, which has been signed by 30. 36,966 uh, people from 160 countries, and it is supported by 517 organizations. We have many volunteer activists, including many country contacts from every continent, engaged in defending women's rights. You can also just become a member of WDI to help our work, but volunteer or donating. Please join us. Today, we have a very international panel ranging from Australia to the United States. And uh, we will have um, uh, Kath Aiken, Aiken from the UK, and she will tell us about our new book. Um, we will have Luba Fine from Israel. Luba and Anna Sobina will be talking about the latest European Parliament's resolution on prostitution and its impact on women's rights. We will also have Jessica Williams. Uh, she will tell us why she signed the Declaration on Women's Sexual Rights. We will have, we will welcome again Claudia Borrayo from Portugal. She was here last week and she will continue with her presentation on the brief history of the gender critical movement in Portugal, strategies and struggles. And finally, we will have Irene Lawrence from the USA and Marika Boss from the Netherlands. And they will also will be telling us why they signed the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. So without uh, further ado, we will have the um, intervention by Kath Aiken by the, from the UK. She's a WGDI volunteer, a full-time employee, an amateur editor and a harassed mother. And she will be explaining all of you about uh, the new uh, and first Let's hope it's not the last uh, WDI book, Women's Rights, Gender Wrongs. Hello, sisters. The WDI book is due to be published on Wednesday, 10th October next week. And before its publication, we just wanted to pass on a little information about the book, about the project as a whole, and about where you'll be able to buy it. Women's Rights, Gender Wrongs, The Global Impact of Gender Identity Ideology was inspired by one of the WDI country contacts meetings in spring 2022. These meetings take place weekly and are attended by WDI women from all over the world who talk about their activism and what is happening as regards women's rights in their countries. It's a chance for everyone to share what they've been doing, ask for support, or just to let off some steam about the latest outrageous colonization of women's spaces. Regular attendees include women from Asia, Latin America, Oceania, Europe and North America. The geographical spread has provided us with a snapshot of how gender identity ideology has reached all the corners of the globe. As an organisation, we thought we could turn this into a book, which would be the first to tackle gender identity ideology's global impact. The book is in two sections, 35 country reports spanning every continent and 25 chapters sorry, 28 chapters solicited from declaration signatories. Country reports are based on the nine articles of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights and provide deep insight into the state of women's rights in individual countries and how they are affected by the encroachment of gender identity ideology. 
The chapters cover a wide range of issues, including rapid onset gender dysphoria, surrogacy, statistics, loss of lesbian spaces, and the horrors faced by women imprisoned with men. Our authors come from Brazil, Angola, Argentina, Australia, the US, Wales, and many more places. Some are experienced writers and academics, some are writing for the first time, all are brilliant. This project has been an enormous collaboration of over 115 women and simply would not have been possible without WDI, a truly grassroots women's organization, which has inspired and connected women everywhere. The editorial team is hugely grateful to the support we've had from the directors, for, from our country contacts and from every woman who gave up some time to help us get the book out. We've had some fantastic endorsements already from Renata Klein, Anne Ramy and Kathleen Stock and do hope as many of you as possible will buy a copy. Pre-ordering is available on Amazon and from Waterstones in the UK. There will be an ebook which you will be able to buy directly from the WDI website. We hope you enjoy it and thank you to everyone who helped us get it done. Now we will move to uh, one of the recent developments, a positive development for a change. Um, Luba Fine and uh, Anna Sognina will be talking about the European Parliament's resolution on prostitution and its impact on women's rights, which is uh, a resolution uh, that supports granting aid to victims of the sex industry, survivors of prostitution, and holding sex buyers and pimps accountable. This will be a presentation in two, uh, two parts. Luba Fine, who is a member of the Sex Trade Lead and Philia UK, she will be discussing the importance of the resolution for the global fight against the sex industry and in favor of the Nordic model for fight, uh, fighting prostitution. And Anna Sognina, Director of the European Network of Migrant Women, expert in male violence against women with a specific focus on migrants and refugee women, Will be, uh, she will be giving us an overview of the resolution, the context in which it was adopted, its meaning in the wider human rights instruments at the global, at European level. So welcome both of you and uh, Luba, um, whenever you're ready, thank you very much. My name is Luba Fine. I am a sex trade abolitionist from Israel. Uh, during the last 20 years, I have been uh, fighting the sex trade in my country. Five years ago, after my country finally banned the pain for sex, I enthusiastically joined the same battle globally. And uh, I met there many amazing women who are there, including Anna Sobnina. So today, Anna Sobnina and I came here to talk about one of the recent feminist achievements in the struggle against prostitution. The European Parliament's resolution on prostitution which uh, supports the main principles of the Nordic model. We will uh, explain today uh, that the Nord what the Nordic model is, why it is so crucial for Europe, and why does the European Par Parliament's resolution stand for. So I, I, I will explain what the Nordic model is and why do we need it so bad globally and not just in, in several countries. So we feminists know very well that prostitution is violent, exploitative, and extremely dangerous for, for vulnerable women. According to Israeli data, the users of aid services for women in prostitution have uh, 
numerous mental health challenges. 25% have experienced psychiatric hospitalizations. 31% have attempted suicide. 50% suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And other 40% have uh, different mental illnesses. Maybe Israeli data is exceptional. It is not. In groundbreaking research, Melissa Farley and her colleagues interviewed 854 people in prostitution from nine countries. And they found out that 71% of those people were physically assaulted in prostitution. 63% were raped. And 68% uh, had PTSD. In a study by Janice Raymond and her colleagues of prostituted women in three countries, they found that 30% uh, of Filipino women, 33% of Russian women, and 77% of US women reported uh, head injuries. This horror should be solved, but how? Broadly speaking, there are three different legal models globally. Prohibitionism claims that prostitutes, women in prostitution, are harmful to the society. They either criminalize anyone involved in prostitution, especially the women, or single out the sex buyers. And this model is implemented in most parts of the US, Asia, and Africa. Another model is decriminalization or legalization. Uh, this model claims that the sex trade can be less harmful or not harmful at all if adequately regulated. This model exists in Germany, New Zealand, and some parts of Australia, uh, as well as the Netherlands, Switzerland, and recently also Belgium. The last one is abolitionism, the Nordic model, which we support, it claims that the sex trade is inherently violent and thus should be abolished. The main principles behind the Nordic model are uh, as following. The purchase of sex should be prohibited. Profiting from prostitution and other persons also should be prohibited. But women in prostitution or people in prostitution are victims who should get help to exit the sex trade. This model is enforced in eight countries. The first was Sweden in 1999, and the last was Israel in uh, uh, 2020, and uh, we hope for more. So I won't discuss prohibitionism today because it is a feminist meeting and not a single feminist supports it. No feminist believes that women in prostitution should be criminalized. This model is also becoming less and less popular in Europe and the OECD. The real global struggle now is the, between the supporters of uh, legal brothels and the supporters of, supporters of the Nordic model, like us. So, okay, legalization and decriminalization, we often use both terms. They are basically the same in implementation. They make the brothels legal. I will, I will explain what is Nordic model. However, the underlying ideology is different. 
the idea behind the legalization is that we cannot eliminate the sex trade. So we will let the state supervise it and make it less harmful, maybe less dangerous. The ideology behind the decriminalization is different. It suggests that uh, the sex trade is not inherently harmful. Only the legal framework can be harmed. The stigma harms women, the police harms women, but the pimps and the sex buyers are not necessarily bad. Once we treat prostitution as a normal job and running a brothel is a normal business, all the violence of most of it will stop. Okay? Not okay. In the, it is interesting to, to say that in recent decades, there has been a change in the rhetoric related to the sex industry. Three decades ago, we mainly heard cold liberal arguments, such as women cho choose to be prostitutes, it's their business, it doesn't concern me. But in recent decades, a pseudo-feminist rhetoric has been born to defend the sex industry. Those who use it say, we know that some women enter prostitution because of the scarcity of alternatives, but we must respect their choice. These women have agency. Who are we to decide for them? So they support pimps selling women to sex buyers and make billions, but it is simply because they respect women. There are no other reasons. So I must point out here that prostitution does not exist because some women chose it. It seems understandable to me, but, but I also hear feminist women say that if we give women more opportunities, there will be no prostitution. So this is not simply not true. If we understand that prostitution is violence, we know that it is impossible to choose it. But even if you pretend that prostitution is work, there is not a single industry in the world that exists because the workers want it. Industries are driven by demand, by producers, by marketers, but never, never by workers. However, we also do not believe that legal prostitution is better. Even in theory, even if perfectly implemented, decriminalization cannot eliminate the inherent virus of violence of prostitution as a practice. Prostitution is violent. Women do not want to be prostitutes, legal or illegal. When prostitution is legal, it is promoted and advertised. The demand is climbing up. The gap between supply and demand is expanding. How can we bridge the gap? by forcing more women in prostitution, by manipulating them. Supporters of legal brothels claim that in the countries where prostitution is decriminalized, the women in prostitution are in a better condition than in the Nordic model countries. But even this is a lie, of course, even in the Nordic model countries, women in prostitution suffer because you cannot turn prostitution in something good, into something good. Just like you cannot turn rape or domestic violence into something. At most, we can reduce the dimensions of the phenomenon and help the, and help the victims. But uh, what happens in, in the countries where prostitution is decriminalized? 
These countries have released almost no official reports on what happened since the brothels became legal there. We have no official reports from Australia, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Austria, Greece, and other countries. But let's address the little information we do have. In New Zealand, prostitution was decriminalized in 2003. In 2008, the official report was published. The report was written in collaboration with the organization that promoted the law, New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. So they left the cat to guard the cream. The findings of the report were pra praised. So it, like the model worked, everything is good. But when you read the report, you see fewer positive things. For example, the report states that a third of women in legal prostitution could not reject even one client a year. Just imagine, not even one client a year, a third of women in prostitution. Another 10% reported being punished for rejecting a sex buyer. So this is legally enforced rape. In addition, even according to very conservative estimates from New Zealand, the number of women in prostitution quadrupled during the low period. For more information, you can see the latest publications on the Nordic Model Now website. Now Germany. Two documents were published there by a former policeman, Helmut Schorer, in the last two years. According to Schorer, the vast majority of the population in prostitution in Germany are foreign women who do not want to be there. Still, they are unaware of their rights and are afraid to contact the authorities. In 2002, a year ago, a study by Melissa Parley and her colleagues showed that legal sex buyers in Germany are a war of coercion and violence against women, but they do not report it to authorities. Explain to me now, how are they, are they not criminals? At the same time, we have some evidences of a decline in the sex industry under the Nordic model, like in Sweden and Norway. Israel has not yet published an official report, but we have information from organizations that help thousands of women to get out of prostitution yearly. These women have someone to ask for help. It is not enough. And we should not sit quietly, but it is an important step. But the problem is that enforcing the Nordic model in only a few countries, it is not enough. Look at the evaluation report of implementing the Nordic model in France. Look at that report. The report cites people in prostitution, mostly from economically unstable countries. Unfortunately, this report does not attempt to ask who operates all those people, but still, they say that they intend to move to Switzerland where the brothels are legal, or to Spain where it is illegal to hold the brothels, but enforcement is feeble, but not stay in France where the Nordic model is enforced. The Nordic model makes prostitution not profitable. However, when the Nordic model only exists in a few islands in the world, the crime routes move to other places. 
to the neighboring country, like from France to Spain. And this is our biggest problem in Europe. As far as some countries in Western Europe, like Germany, Poland, Switzerland, Belgium, have legal prostitution, implementing the Nordic model in Sweden, in Sweden, in Norway, or in France, it won't solve the legal original problem. As I said, legalization of prostitution does not make prostitution attractive to women or, or even bearable. Nobody wants to be in prostitution. So less vulnerable women from dominant economies of Europe, they, they can avoid it and they do avoid it. Evidence tells that most women in prostitution in welfare countries in Europe are from Eastern Europe or from, from some other place in the global south. Some women imagine that impoverished women choose to be prostitutes rather than cashiers in a local supermarket, but this is a lie. Most women in prostitution are trafficked, forced, and conned. Pimps who operate in, in dominant economies of Europe with legal prostitution target very poor Eastern European women who are vulnerable, very naive, and do not know any foreign language. They sell those women lies. Some women do not know they're going to be prostituted. Others believe that prostitution is about a lot of money, yachts, luxury hotels, brands, and charming sex buyers. Remember that many of the less stable countries in Europe are part of the, of the European Union and their travel within the European Union is not checked at all. In some countries, such as Germany, it is legal to exploit them in prostitution. No one monitors their situation. These women come from poverty to the brothels of dominant economies of Europe. So not only do the women not know the language of the target country, they do not know their human rights. Most are deeply ashamed of their situation and would rather die than let their family know. This leaves them with no one to ask for help. Some women who do manage to escape prostitution return home often have post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug addiction, physical injuries, and severe dysfunction. However, no rehabilitation frameworks, adequate welfare services, comprehensive physical or mental treatment await them at home. The burden of treating the victims of the sex industry falls on economically and politically unstable countries who do not know how to do it. And that's why we needed so bad a resolution that calls to expand the sex purchase ban and help women to exit prostitution to every country in the world, starting with Europe. I just want to emphasize again that uh, prostitution, uh, I, I, have see, I have seen the chat even after my presentation, so it is very important to me to say that prostitution does not happen because women are uh, uh, poor or destitute or have uh, fewer alternatives or maybe have uh, sexual trauma from childhood. It happens because there are men who want to buy women and pimps who want to profit from the sex trade. 
No, sex trade does not happen because some women in prostitute themselves, so they initiate it. It is not a, it is not a prostitutes driving industry. So it is very, very important. So for the sex trade to stop, we do not we we don't have to empower women or make women richer or more powerful or more uh, aware of the situation. If if every single woman in this world will go rich, Pims and Jones will not sit down and say, oh, shit, uh, the women are rich now, so we will just uh, go back home. They should be targeted, not, not, not women. They should be targeted. They uh, feed this industry. They create this industry. They run this industry. Thank you. Now, Anna Sabnina will explain the contents of the resolution that we hope will uh, um, create this legal framework for women in the jurisdiction. Anna, whenever you're ready, thank you and welcome. So I will take you through the resolution that Luba mentioned uh, that was adopted by the European Parliament on the 40th of September. It's a very, very recent document and a very important one. And I understand that uh, not everyone might know about the Nordic model, uh, but also not everyone might know about what the European Parliament resolutions are and what power they have. Uh, so just to place it in a historic context, uh, I will speak about the content of the resolution, what it says, but it, it roots, it's legal roots. Uh, so every document, um, every legal document that the European Parliament adopts uh, must have a legal basis. So it, it has to be derived either through um, European Union law, uh, from European Union treaties or needs to have a connection with uh, international law, maybe Council of Europe or international law in the sense of uh, United Nations. So the major legal connection here is actually CEDO Article 6, CEDO, the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Uh, and Article 6 deals specifically with prostitution, trafficking for prostitution, and sexual exploitation of others, that means pimping, of <clears throat> other people, but since the convention, CEDO uh, Convention, uh, deals with women specifically, so it is really about pimping and sexual exploitation of women in prostitution, and it recognizes it as, 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 as a crime. Um, so, starting from this uh, United Nations Convention Article 6, which also had a general recommendation based on the Article 6 in 2020, and it was General Recommendation 38, that explained to the states about the crimes of trafficking and uh, how they are connected with the institution and the system of prostitution and what kind of women are particularly vulnerable. So this is what CEDAW committee did in 2020, starting from this and some other international instruments that we have, uh, such as Palermo Protocol, but also previous resolutions of uh, European Parliament and also European Union law. Uh, the, the resolution was adopted uh, in the context of uh, quite a strong campaign that several organizations had been doing for a number of months. This is just an example of the most kind of, you know, the latest before the resolution. This is the action that we co-organized with a number of our partners. And you can see Luba there uh, in, in this photo. 
these are the members of uh, the network of our network, European Network of Migrant Women, but also our partners from uh, Coalition for the Abolition of Prostitution and other organizations who did this action in front of the European Parliament and inside the European Parliament as well. Um, our network is, as the name stands, we are made of migrant and refugee women, and uh, our position is very clear. It has been such since the foundation of the network. We will never accept prostitution as a job, which is very often offered to migrant women uh, in Europe. And migrant women statistically constitute overwhelming majority of victims uh, in prostitution in some countries, up to 100%. <laughs> Um, so this is the res resolution itself. Um, as as the, the title stands, uh, it, it says, the resolution intends to look at the implications of various models, legal models on prostitution, on women's rights. And Luba just took us through those different models. So we have quite contradictory and completely opposite models on prostitution in Europe. Um, with some countries recognizing it as a job and other countries recognizing it as violence and others standing somewhere in between. So the idea of this resolution that was based on first investigation and a report was really to look into the impact, what happens with women's rights if you have, if you look, if you take prostitution and regulate it as, as a job like any other, or if you treat it as a form of violence and discrimination and inequality that basically is, a, is an outcome of unequal relationship between women and men. Um, the resolution was adopted uh, with a, quite a good majority, I would say, but there were some abstentions as well, and I will uh, speak about um, a bit later. But now are the main points of the resolution. So first of all, uh, as I started my presentation, it placed the this this text in the historic tradition, the abolitionist tradition that we already have in the international instrument, starting with CEDAW Convention, Palermo Protocol, and EU fundamental law. Uh, so basically, it reaffirmed that in the international law, of course, sex work does not exist. So whatever is being quoted by some United Nations agencies here and there and reports, sometimes they use this expression sex work. In reality, not one single binding legal instrument at international level has the term sex work. Um, uh, so what is there is prostitution, exploitation of prostitution, meaning pimping, exploitation of others, exploitation in prostitution, trafficking for the purpose of exploitation of prostitution. These are the correct legal terms. Uh, Secondly, the resolution reaffirmed that prostitution is a form of violence. It doesn't specifically say male violence. This is the term that we use, that I use, uh, but it would it, it would recognize women as being overwhelmingly impacted by this and, and men as perpetrators. And as such, it is a form of uh, male violence. It, it, it ma made it very clear, again, reaffirmed, it didn't invent it because this affirmation was already in other conventions, um, including, by the way, 
1949 Convention on Prostitution and Trafficking, which says that prostitution is incompatible with human dignity. The question of consent is irrelevant here. The question of whether somebody chooses or not, it's really a secondary kind of derailing conversation. At the bottom line, uh, the understanding is that human uh, sexuality, in, in this case, obviously, women's sexuality, commodification of our bodies and of ourselves, uh, because we're not separate from our bodies, commodification of our sexuality is, in, is incompatible with human dignity, and it is based on a number of legal cases in the same way as we cannot consent and preserve our human dignity, which is primordial in the international human rights law. Um, we cannot consent to slavery, for example. In the same in the same way, uh, uh, there is no compatibility between human dignity and uh, somebody consenting to prostitution. And this is on top of the fact that consent, of course, um, you know, some would argue that consent cannot be bought, and this is what the resolution says. But if we go even further, consent in some circumstances can be bought; it can be coerced. So the point is not the consent. Consent is not really particularly feminist uh, concept or a term to start with. Um, uh, of course, the resolution, because it looks on the impacts uh, on the, on the at the impact of uh, prostitution on women's rights, it acknowledges that prostitution harms all women. It is not just those women who are exploited in prostitution. It is the impact on every woman and girl who, by the extension of just being women become commodified uh, uh, and, and perceived as sexual objects by men who are the buyers. And of course, it has an impact on men who socialize themselves into understanding that every woman and every girl is for sale. Uh, the resolution also recognizes racist and classist nature of prostitution, uh, which of course we can observe if we just study uh, those women who are segregated in brothels or are being pimp pimped in the street. It is overwhelmingly uh, women either from migrant background and, and of course, poor women. Um, it, it, it speaks specifically about uh, statistics and that over 70% of victims of prostitution in Europe are migrant women. And uh, it places the responsibility where it belongs, which is extremely important. It shifts the responsibility from the victim, from the person, woman in this case, who is exploited, onto buyers and third parties who profit from prostitution, the pimps. Uh, it calls to reduce demand for prostitution by criminalizing perpetrators, which is the, the Nordic model that uh, Luba was talking about. Uh, and uh, it absolutely demands to criminalize uh, all those exploited in prostitution and to provide exit support programs, trauma-informed reintegration and access to fundamental rights. And I just want to give a few quotes. Um, so the resolution can be found on the website of, of the European Parliament. It is translated in 24 uh, official languages of the European Parliament. Uh, but here we're dealing with the original English version. So these are the actual quotes. How does it define the prostitution? You can find there the definition and, and um, you, you can use it. Um, it speaks, uh, it, it equates um, prostitution with the form of uh, violence. It makes a very clear point that yes, there are some who would argue that they chose uh, to be prostituted and there are those who argue that uh, they consent and um, the the transaction that occurs within prostitution doesn't harm them. 
uh, and they absolutely do not constitute the majority of those uh, who represent the prostitution market. And um, the laws and the decisions in our society um, are usually taken on the basis of the majority, and particularly the most vulnerable among those who are affected by a specific problem. Um, so yeah, this is again, I already mentioned this, but this is a concrete quote. It says that a prostitution is incompatible with the human dignity and the worth of a human person. Um, it, 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 it gives, um, you know, the, actually the resolution is about 30 pages and then it, it uh, separates it thematically. So there is uh, one chapter on demand, one chapter on those who are exploited in prostitution, one chapter, how um, uh, the, the prostitution is impacting uh, the rights of women and girls and what is in the EU terms is called gender equality. And I called it the equality between the sexes. Um, it calls on the states to provide uh, various programs from prevention, obviously, uh, to make, to create the conditions that does not facilitate entry of women and most vulnerable women in prostitution, in particular with the emphasis on refugee women who are being trafficked and, and pimped, migrant women, poorer women, women who are coming out of um, uh, care uh, homes and um, homeless women, uh, those who are coming out of prison as well. So all of those vulnerable groups to install the prevention programs, uh, to reduce the demand, to, to introduce the programs that, that would reduce demand through education, but also to criminalize uh, the buyers and the third parties. Um, so, yeah, it ad addresses specifically that uh, those who are seeking to exchange sexual acts, and it uses correct terms because very often um, the, the the terms that are used in legal documents, um, you know, they call it sexual services. We always argue against it. This resolution is good on language. It uses sexual acts rather than sex or sexual services. Uh, so, yeah, it calls to criminalize uh, every person. And we know that they are overwhelmingly men who are seeking to exchange sexual acts for remuneration. And, it's, and it calls on the states to punish, uh, to recognize as a criminal offense, anybody who profits uh, from prostitution. Uh, it also speaks about the harmful gender stereotypes and how it impacts uh, the perception of women uh, more generally, even outside of prostitution. Here I want to mention as well that, uh, and this is a bigger issue that we have with practically all uh, legal texts that come out of European institutions, but particularly European Parliament, there is a very great conflation between sex and gender overall in documents. Uh, but uh, here, for example, for some reason, absolutely unknown to me, they when they list the factors of vulnerability, instead of listing sex as the first one, uh, we have here gender identity. Now, this is a, a, a very big pity. We think the resolution is extremely important. Uh, we invite everyone to use it, to read it, to promote it. Uh, and this is a quite a serious drawback in, in this document. There are other 
um, kind of weaknesses that we discovered, and this is in translation. So, for example, uh, some of our colleagues, when they looked at the Spanish version of the document, they saw some discrepancies in the translation. So we're now trying to initiate the conversation with the translation unit of the European Parliament uh, to, to, to kind of encourage them to correct the, the, the translation, but it's an ongoing conversation. Uh, yeah, and here, this is something that I'd like to share, which I think could be interesting for those who are in Europe. Uh, so this is the resolution, This, this these are the votes. So we can see, um, the, you know, the, this, this is all the European Parliament. We can see that quite a number of parliamentarians simply decided not to turn up at the vote. Uh, and I think, in my understanding, this is because um, it's a controversial resolution, so they don't want to be caught in controversial acts, either voting against or for it. There was quite a large number of abstentions and uh, 175 votes against, but however, we had 234 um, voting for the resolution. And if we look at the composition, so what we have, and by the way, just to make it clear, it's not my analysis. I copied it from another document from the colleagues, uh, our colleagues who made it. Uh, but we have here, so PPE, this is quite a conservative group. So European Parliament has these political families. So in, in your country, it may be, for example, a, a member of parliament may belong to the left, but somehow they might end up in another political family in the Re European Parliament. So this is just the European Parliament uh, families, political families compositions. So for example, Renew, which is quite uh, a liberal uh, European party, uh, they traditionally are against, um, um, you know, they go with the freedom of speech argument and, and uh, they would vote against any restrictions on the rights of men when it comes to male sexual behavior. And they were overwhelmingly against this resolution. Uh, Social Democrats, SNDs, overwhelmingly voted for it and PPE which is more conservative party also supported the resolution and then we had the far right parties ECR and ID and they voted against the resolution uh, and uh, primarily as we understand their objection was because the resolution also speaks about sexual reproductive rights of exploited and prostitution women and the access to abortion and purely because this was part of the resolution we voted down the entire document. The uh, European Parliament resolutions have no legally binding value. So, so this is not a law, unlike we have the directives that has to be transposed by every state within a certain deadline, and then European Commission can impose sanctions if there is a wrong transposition and so on. This is not a hard law. This is not, it's a soft law effectively, but it is an important, first of all, it's a statement. Nobody, especially at the global level, uh, there is an argument because we have Germany and Netherlands and a few other countries who legalize prostitution. So they all, all, all often describe European Union as a kind of a pioneer in legalizing prostitution. It's, it is simply not true. And we have a strong, two strong European Parliament statements that the direction generally the Euro European Union wants to go is the Nordic model. Now, it's when, if, if it's going to happen is another question. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's more to be used as a, advocacy and lobbying tool you can use as as a quotes in in uh, in documents and referring saying that this is the position 
of the European Parliament, the only democratically elected body in the European Union. I just want to make it very, very clear. Right now, where we are with European Union documents, uh, the conflation between sex and gender is given. You will not find one single legal document that actually clearly says sex and they mean sex. Sometimes they say sex disaggregated data, and this is because it's a specific term that is also um, kind of embedded in other legal docs documents and, and like Eurostat works with it. So they can't get rid of it. They wouldn't say gender disaggregated data, but that's about it. The rest, whenever they mean sex, they say gender and they write it in legal documents. And then on top of this, when they mean gender, they can as well mean gender identity whatever they want. So we are trying to, I mean, you know, we're not legal, we don't have legal power, we're NGOs, civil society, so we're always trying to use the correct terms. But I think something to think about at the level of the European Union is to question uh, the lawmaking bodies as to legitimacy of their using gender when they actually mean sex, because in the EU founding treaties, there is only sex, there is no gender. So we still have this, and they're trying to amend the treaties, but there is still sex and we can refer to it. Now we're moving on to our next speaker, uh, Jessica Williams from Australia, and she's going to tell us why she signed the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. Welcome, Jessica, and the floor is yours. At the core of the Declaration is the fact that the rights of women and girls are centered around the material reality of our natal sex, our sex which can never be changed. Members of the male sex, that is men and boys, cannot physically or spiritually become members of the female sex. With or without the enforced new religion of gender identity, women and girls need special legislative provisions and legal protections based on our sex. But gender identity identity encroaching our rights through legislation is certainly making things a lot worse for women and girls. And so the articles of the Declaration each cover important areas of our rights, um, which mean a lot to me on the political and personal levels. These are important sex-based sex rights, which are constantly being undermined, overlooked, breached, and ignored. In my opinion, some of the most disturbing examples of this intrusion into our sex-based statuses and rights are shown in the attacks on motherhood we're seeing across the world. Here in Australia, we have men making headlines for getting babies to latch onto their nipples so they can indulge their own fantasies by excreting an untested prescription cocktail into the body of a baby. I wholly believe this is sexual assault of babies by deviant men. All the while, breastfeeding women are still being humiliated and discriminate, discriminated against in Australia. The Australian Breastfeeding Association has abandoned mothers and their babies by advocating and facilitating this. They advocate for natal men to chest feed babies. They've also harassed and cut off volunteers and staff that resist this attack on the female-only status of motherhood. While women and girls in Australia suffer with inadequate reproductive health care, the government, some clinics, and some NGOs and women's advocacy groups worry about inclusive language, 
for men that claim to be women and demand access to abortion and other reproductive health services. Only women and girls will ever need abortion services, and I'm very tired of suffering fools on this subject. And put very simply, I believe that the re reproductive exploitation of women through surrogacy is wrong, full stop, and it must be stopped. As for the ludicrous notion that a man could ever gestate a human being in utero, I find it horrifying that some people on this planet are so deranged that they seek out ways to manipulate the male body to do something it is not intended to do and will never actually be able to do. But to hell with the carnage that it, they create on this wild goose chase. There are far too many examples of women and girls being punished and discriminated against for expressing opinions about and against gender identity. From recently in Australia, an autistic schoolgirl being suspended for questioning why a boy was in the girl's bathroom with her at her school, to a female professor at the University of Melbourne being consistently targeted for years with harassment and vilification by students and faculty. And in more recent months, an academic researcher and law student at the University of Melbourne has been harassed for her opinions about gender identity. Even the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Violence, on, sorry, on Violence Against Women and Girls was compelled to speak up about the suppression of this important right for women. Within her statement, she says, quote, Attempts to silence women based on the views they hold regarding the scope of gender identity and sex in law and in practice and the rights associated with these severely affects their participation in society, in dignity and in safety, as well as their country's prosperity and development. Many women in Australia face dangers in their own homes. We know a lot about this as a community. And now we are also experiencing violence in the public, often in broad daylight, over our gender critical views. A woman was left disabled after being assaulted at a pub by a man that pretends to be a woman. A group of women, including myself, were followed, set upon and attacked, harassed and slandered by extremists from the trans lobby simply because we attended a University of Melbourne event about what our public institutions can learn from UK's Stonewall controversy, and we were assumed to be TERFs. Women need police protection to gather for public demonstrations, and in the year 2023, lesbians cannot gather at public events as lesbians only. The Lesbian Action Group in Victoria is currently taking on the Australian Human Rights Commission to hold what they're calling female-born, lesbian-only public events. An exemption application was made to rightfully exclude all men and heterosexual women from their events. The AHRC just handed down its preliminary decision to not approve the exemption application from the Lesbian Action Group. Hundreds of Australian women and many men have sent in thousands of submissions and letters with impeccable and comprehensive resources to hundreds of consultations and surveys pertaining to matters of our sex-based rights and child safeguarding. We have spent countless hours ensuring all levels of government and members of every political party 
are informed about this erosion of our rights, only for it all to be ignored. While the ability to engage with consultations and the like is a level of political participation, when your words, experiences, and research are completely ignored every time, it begins to feel futile. Even when our submissions have been the clear majority, they have still been wholly ignored. Some Australian women have essentially been blacklisted and barred from engaging with their local members for parliament. Is this done in response to credible threats for safety? Of course not. They just have political opinions that are um, considered gender critical that they want representation on. As for fair participation in sport, for my research, which is quite a bit, every single Australian sporting body has embedded pathways within its within their policies and regulations for natal men to be considered natal women and for those men to compete as and against women. This is every single Australian sporting body. And this is on the grassroots and elite levels. Finally, Australia has a horrible record when it comes to violence against women and girls and against women and their children. For example, state police have a history of mishandling sexual assault reports. 15 women per day are hospitalized for injuries related to domestic violence. An average of one woman per week is killed by a violent male known to her and we are set to surpass that average this year. A high percentage of total assaults, as you can see on the screen, are results of, are matters of domestic and family violence. Prison officials are known to hide the number of strip searches conducted against imprisoned women. And when records are kept, we see that women are strip searched in very high numbers, repeatedly and without good reason. Escalating the rampant violence against women and girls is Australia's new government-sponsored religion, gender identity ideology. On top of increasing rates of female incarceration, deaths of Aboriginal women in custody, and so many other injustices that incarcerated women face, every state and territory in Australia has a policy or a legislative provision which permits natal men being housed as and with women. During the sentencing of a dangerous male sexual offender in a Victorian court, His Honor Judge Tawana states the following in reference to the man known as Lisa Jones. Having considered this matter carefully, I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that you will pose a risk to the sexual safety of one or more persons or to the community upon your release from custody. He also said, I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that you present a real risk as opposed to a fanciful risk. And I regard the magnitude and the nature of the risk posed by you and the consequent gravity of possible harm as high. Despite the clear and admitted risks this man posed, he was placed in a women's unit at the Dane Phyllis Frost Centre, a supposed women-only prison in Victoria, Australia. On top of that, Thousands of girls and young women are being sent binders every year, oftentimes without any parental or medical professional involvement. All levels of government are seemingly captured and they seeming, there is seemingly no political party or government department with the integrity to genuinely stand for women's rights in these matters. State health departments and other departments 
which are running female-specific surveys and consultations, define woman as everyone and anyone in the country, further skewing important data, and police process people based on self-identified gender. Of course, this is just the country I live in. It gets worse for women in some other countries in many ways. The bare minimum I could do is sign the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, and I hope like hell that I see the day that its provisions are genuinely implemented within legislation and culture the world over. Thank you. We'll uh, move to our next speaker, uh, Claudia Borrayo. She was here last week, so but she, she didn't have the time to, to finish her presentation. We will have now the end of, of that. Claudia uh, will tell us about, uh, it's, it's a short history of the gender critical movement in Portugal, strategies and struggle. Last week, uh, I explained basically uh, how it worked with the feminist movement and the LGBT, uh, the gay and lesbian originally movement in Portugal. It was quite late comparing to most uh, of the countries. Um, and uh, basically in the 90s, we started uh, with the gay and lesbian charities and uh, all this stuff. Uh, this was the first, uh, the gay and lesbian uh, film festival this uh, is from 2000, and by the time the name was Gay Festival uh, Gay Lesbic de Lisboa. In this eleventh uh, edition, they changed the name to Queer Lisboa. So it was a sign people was not very aware what was queer at the time. Uh, it was in 2007, but they had uh, they added also Festival Cinema Gay Lesbic Lisboa. So they had both. Nowadays, it's only queer Lisboa. So you see, so people already uh, uh, had the, the, the word queer um, uh, in its mind. The feminist movement, um, in 2015, uh, a group claiming to be feminist invaded Figaro's barber shop. Uh, and unfortunately, this is uh, the image that most Portuguese have from feminists uh, nowadays. Um, the few uh, radical feminist groups that appeared uh, later were very small and they didn't last uh, much. Uh, in 2022, uh, Fox, oh, I, there is a typo here. It's Fox Life uh, TV channel, not Fix. Uh, and Ilga Portugal uh, promoted a massive campaign called ABC LGBTQI+, uh, and uh, um, it was a massive, uh, there was a massive discussion uh, in Portuguese society. Many public figures uh, start writing about these issues, uh, some of them supporting the initiative, others pointing out things like uh, the changing of the definitions, <clears throat> uh, replacing the word uh, sex by gender. Things are happening very fast uh, in Portugal. Uh, this year, uh, it's being huge in uh, events. Uh, in the beginning of the year, in 2003, uh, a group of uh, trans activists orchestrated an action in the San Luis Theater in Lisbon uh, during a play adapted from Pedro Almodovar's Todo Sobre Mi Madre. Um, uh, a person claiming to be a trans woman invaded the stage and uh, ordered the actor 
playing uh, a trans woman uh, to leave uh, the stage. It was a huge uh, thing in Portugal. Um, on the next day, the theater apologized and hired uh, a trans woman for the role. Uh, most Portuguese and also gay people um, didn't subscribe uh, this uh, action, but uh, it resulted uh, in many people talking about trans fake, what was trans fake, and uh, all this. Uh, let me add something here. They use uh, these uh, kind of words uh, like uh, uh, they claim that they are for uh, inclusion, intersectionality, interculturality, anti-fascist, anti-racism, anti-capitalism, suggesting that if you oppose to their narratives, you might be all the opposite. So you might be a fascist, a racist, a capitalist, and um, we need to be aware that uh, in Portugal we lived a right-wing dictatorship almost uh, during 50 years. Uh, so people are somehow led to believe that uh, the, the, the left uh, uh, are the good-hearted people and the right-wing voters are the fascists. This is a very interesting uh, way to to analyze uh, what is going on um uh, it's important to uh, tell that in 2002 uh, last year i created uh, gender critical lesbians we are now almost uh, 800 members um we have very diverse uh, members our ages are very balanced um um we have like 20% of uh, each uh, uh, ages. Um, uh, I was also uh, starting to look for Portuguese allies, um, gender critical uh, people. And uh, we managed also this year to found, uh, so, um, uh, the first gender critical uh, Portuguese uh, group. Uh, almost at the same time, another group was created. We didn't know about each other, but we sometimes cooperate. Um, so, um, basically, um, similar critiques of uh, trans fake was done were done also to pound the sucker a book um written by uh, a, a very known uh, writer uh, but they claimed that because he was a cis author not trans he shouldn't be allowed to write about a trans person uh, in April, it's important to know also, our government passed a law allowing school kids to change their names and gender uh, in schools. Uh, what made uh, society massively signed a, a petition uh, based on the worries that girls would lose their privacy and safety in places like school bathrooms, changing rooms, um, this petition uh, was supposed to be discussed in the parliament uh, last month in September, uh, but uh, we didn't hear about it, so probably it was postponed. Um, 
so uh, in our uh, groups, in our gender critical groups in Portugal, uh, we uh, invite uh, the maximum uh, of people who are against this uh, ideology. Uh, and we have um, people from most uh, different political parties. We have gay people, we have conservative heterosexuals, uh, Christians, uh, and it's interesting because uh, most of most of the, the persons there uh, are aimed uh, have this aim of design helping to design uh, peaceful and creative ideas to join efforts in order not to commit the same mistakes we can observe abroad, because the fact that uh, things happen in Portugal uh, a bit later the good ones and the bad ones, it gives us some time uh, to think about uh, about stuff and somehow uh, be prepared. Um, for instance, uh, these groups, uh, people uh, of these groups, they prepared uh, some things like the principles declaration. It was made by independent uh, mothers, not connected to any association or political parties. So they created this document uh, and also were crea was created the parental pin. Uh, it was promoted by uh, an association, a conservative family association. And these are two examples of the efforts of two different groups um, who had similar ideas to avoid children to be brainwashed by the Educação para Cidadania, like uh, citizenship, which is most of it about um, gender ideology. So it allows parents to claim that they don't allow their children to be exposed to uh, these damaging ideas um, in these classes. This is a story hour event in May uh, 2003 in Fnac It was empty. Nobody came. So uh, it means somehow the, the, the Portuguese are very are aware and they don't subscribe to this uh, story hour um, events. Other events, uh, the the group who create uh, these events, they promoted other ones um, with the local entities uh, sponsorship, but um, it doesn't seem to be very successful anyway amongst Portuguese parents. However, um, people, uh, undecided people, uh, can start uh, going to these events with their kids uh, in an attempt to look more progressive or inclusive, and we know the words they use to, to promote this. So this is an example. Uh, in 2003 Gay Pride March uh, in June, uh, Anarchist groups uh, joined the event. They were very welcome uh, in the event. Uh, and one of the participants of this year's March wrote in a group, I felt insecure about the actions of this queer group portrayed in these photographs, as some of its members openly assumed a gang stance when they hooded themselves during the Lisbon 2003 um, March and graffitied uh, several windows. Uh, the fashion, I will uh, forgot again. Uh, it says, uh, Somos dissident, we are dissidents, social war imminent. So 
things are changing very, very fast uh, in Portugal. Yes, it, this is the Antifa, the anarchists, Antifa. I don't know uh, if there is a distinction. Also, this year, after the, the Gay Pride March, there was the first uh, interne- intersectional uh, meeting of trans and non-binary people here in Lisbon. It was not held in uh, any LGBTQAP association. It was held in a feminist organization uh, founded in 76, 1976, called UMAR. So this is uh, unbelievable, yes, uh, that this uh, feminist association promoted this event excluding women. Uh, me and some friends, we tried to um, uh, ask them uh, if it was possible to participate, and they remained uh, silent. Uh, I also said, uh, maybe I'm a non-binary. I would like to discover that with your help. Uh, can I participate in the event? And they didn't answer neither. This was last month. Uh, this is the first uh, book with a neutral language. It is, as you can see, it is. It says inclusion, diversity. So this kind of words that people uh, tend to associate with positive uh, things. By curiosity, I spoke with four friends uh, working with, with the children to check if they knew about the book. None of them heard about the book. They said, "Oh, it it's, it looks nice because it is about inclusivity, inclusivity, and uh, maybe it's a good thing." So they are not uh, at all aware. Um, so yes, uh, we distrust these words nowadays. That's sad. Um, what happened? Uh, so our idea, there there was uh, two groups. Our idea was to uh, interact with them by the end of the presentation and make questions about the, the book and the gender ideology. But unfortunately, there was... Uh, an extremist, um, a bit more extremist group who uh, suddenly, uh, that's that's the video, unfortunately, that's what passed in the the social, uh, the in the media, uh, that uh, some people uh, interrupted the, the event when uh, one of the presenters said, we cannot leave children alone. So the guy immediately came up and we you have to uh, leave children alone and there was this discussion one with the megaphone one with the microphone so this was not a very healthy uh thing and it gave uh, uh, a bad image about uh the the gender critical movement so this was just some examples so uh it uh, talks about a kid uh, called Marie miguel um when uh, feels maria uh, he does ballet. Uh, when he's feeling Miguel, he plays football. It's uh, not very progressive. Yesterday, uh, it, for the first time, we had a trans person competing in the event. In 2025, we will have uh, Euro Pride. We will move now to Irene Lawrence from the USA. She serves as a board member for WGDI USA, as well as the program coordinator for WGDI USA's non-viol- nonviolent direct actions. 
Irene has a Master of Public Policy from Duke University, and in her day job, she works with state governments and advocates for the formerly incarcerated population. Because of her background in justice reform, her biggest concern is for the rights of incarcerated women. So welcome, uh, Irene. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Long before I was familiar with the concept of gender identity, I struggled for many years with unease in what I would now call liberal feminism. By this, I mean the type of feminism that either praises or blames individual women for their choices in a given situation with no structural analysis of the options that she was given or even claiming that she prefers her oppressed state. Growing up as a millennial, though I was never explicitly told there were things I couldn't do as a female, it was clear to me that women were not given the same permission as men to have full humanity. I frequently saw individual women's mistakes used against all women to dismiss the whole premise of patriarchy. As a case in point, just last week, while discussing with a male relative the rampant sexual violence within the Catholic Church, his response was that there were some nuns who took advantage of children too. I kid you not. This framing always left me feeling helpless to describe the world I experienced, one in which I have many privileges and yet also don't feel safe in many spaces. When I first started hearing some of my favorite feminist podcasters discussing gender identity and how quickly the seemingly innocuous idea of preferred pronouns devolved into men being allowed in women's prisons, I almost immediately realized that I was one of those dreaded TERFs they were making so much sense. I quickly discovered that the smallest push against the logic of gender identity would lead to a cascade of personal and professional challenges. After posting about this issue once with great discretion on social media, even friends who knew my character quickly turned on me. And as someone working alongside many criminal justice reform advocates in North Carolina, it feels almost impossible to bring up this issue in a professional context. Especially in the context of justice reform, being anti-racist is seen as being incompatible with fighting for women's rights because any push to hold men accountable for their harm is seen as complicity with the carceral state, which disproportionately incarcerates men of color. As I'm usually one of the only white women in these situations, it's a difficult context in which to speak up. My primary concern, however, in my work life is and has always been for incarcerated women. About the same time I began to realize how taboo it was to speak about women's sex-based rights, I found WDI and read and signed the declaration. The declaration seemed like it was full of points that were so obvious they shouldn't need to be stated. Doesn't everyone already know that mothers are female? How could it be controversial that we need to eliminate violence against women? Seeing the cohesion of the declaration made me more committed to understanding the radical feminist lens, which was the only analysis that seemed to have been right about gender identity all along. Indeed, as more and more groups of people who are not necessarily radical feminists are waking up to the dangers of gender identity, the importance of WDI's grounding in radical feminism becomes ever more apparent to me. Armed with radical feminism's analysis for understanding females' unique needs, and how and why gender strips us of our rights, we can be more effective advocates on a myriad of women's issues. By not wasting time pandering to men who always need to be reminded of how patriarchy harms them too, radical feminism gives us the space to start to truly imagine what a better world for women and girls would look like. 
This all-female intellectual space that WDI provides has been life-changing for me. By politicizing personal situations, I've learned to critique both myself and the world without wallowing in self-blame or anger at an individual woman's behavior. By viewing feminism as a continuous, continuous push for greater sovereignty for females, rather than a series of disjointed waves, I've learned to feel a sense of connection with prior generations of radical feminists whose struggles gave me all the freedoms I value in my life. In uniting with women a generation or two older, I've gained greater respect for the rights, for the fights for women and girls that were won in my lifetime and have lost all fear of becoming older myself. Despite being risk averse and not naturally confrontational, I am also not one to do things halfway. Once I became a radical feminist, the principles and strategies of nonviolent direct action immediately clicked for me, especially as I learned how viciously the most compelling voices trying to speak against gender identity had been silenced. I have been inspired by the courage of women from WDI and Wolf who are willing to directly confront men who want to harm us as we speak about our rights. Watching them has made me realize that I'm capable of this courage too, and deciding that I'm willing to take significant risks to protect these rights has been a deeply empowering experience. Not being inclined to self-advocacy either, I had to unlearn many fears to start speaking up for women's rights. I was accustomed to being well-liked, that is, until I developed enough self-respect to prioritize speaking truthfully over protecting the feelings of others. But now that I'm here, I can't go back. The paradigm shift has been so fast and so complete, I truly don't know how I made sense of the world before I found radical feminism or WDI. I'm grateful for the opportunity to organize women to speak publicly on our rights through NVDA and for all those at WDI pushing to advance the declaration's goals. Thank you. So we're moving on to our next speaker, Marika Bosch, she's a feminist lesbian from the Netherlands, and she's here to tell us why she signed the Declaration on Women's Sex Race Rights. It was a no-brainer for me. I got drawn into this gender war, let's call it, I think about 11 or 12 years ago on Pinterest. That was before I was on Twitter, and I was a member of several feminist group boards, and we had some discussions about prostitution, for instance, is it a women's right or is it a women's wrong and but it was always kind of okay to disagree with sex workers work uh, but then it seemed out of the blue it was all about trans women or women that was new to me and uh, <laughs> I think it, it took me a couple of months before I got blocked from most of the feminist group boards for being transphobic um, at first I was surprised by the stupidity of the arguments and they were so stupid, they actually made me doubt myself. I really thought, am I so am I too stupid to, to understand this? No, no, of course, a trans woman is not a woman. Um, but then eventually I found Feminist Current. I think it was founded in 2014, and I joined Twitter and I found all these women who were sane like me, and that was a really good thing. Because before this started, my idea of People who were transsexuals, not transgender, were actually very feminine gay men and um, butch lesbian women. That was my experience with people who identified as trans. 
but find out that it's also a, a sexual thing, a fetish. That was that was new for me. Let's see, and you mentioned that you were blocked from from the the groups that you were that you had joined online. But I think also that uh, you don't feel free to speak even in the offline world in in your current uh, in your ordinary life, and that's that's for a reason. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, I'm a civil servant, and we are allowed to speak on controversial topics unless it directly impacts our job. And I'm uh, I work for the Dutch uh, Social Security Department of a municipality. Um, I have clients, a case lot of clients, uh, vulnerable people, um, and every now and then one of them is uh, identifies as transgender. So I want to, for them, I want to be a neutral person. So I don't think for my clients it's right to know what my political uh, views are or what my, you know, what my standpoint is on, on prostitution or transgender identities. So uh, it doesn't stop me from speaking to colleagues about this uh, or friends and family. I'm fortunately enough to not have been and not have lost any friends. Um, but, you know, it's it's a close call. Why did you sign the Women's Declaration? Why do you think that is important for, for women? Because it makes sense. It It's, I, I think I agree with pretty much all of it. I'm against surrogacy. I'm against prostitution, transgenderism. Um, because of my job, I work with a lot of vulnerable people. And um, there's such a clear difference between men and women the problems they have, it's just not the same. So we need to make that distinction that women face a sex-based oppression. It has nothing to do with gender, gender identity. It's it's all about our sex and how it's exploited um, by men. Is there anything else you would like to tell women about what's happening in the Netherlands, for instance? Yeah, we don't have self-ID yet, fortunately. There was a proposition for a new law, um, but it's been declared controversial, which means our, well, our government fell. I don't know if that's the right proper English expression, but it fell and we are going to have new elections in November. And because it's declared controversial, it means that until after the elections, they cannot do anything with it, uh, which is a good thing. It has been postponed a couple of uh, times already. And even the party that suggested self-ID uh, is starting to doubt whether it was a good idea. But still, pretty much, well, all the, yeah, no, pretty much all the uh, parties on the left are still leaning towards self-ID. Yeah. And since 2014, um, it's already almost self-ID because all you need is a note from your doctor it can be your GP it can be a psychiatrist or psychologist that says that you have this gender identity and that it's fixed and unchangeable and then you can um, change your legal sex so that you don't even need um what's it called in English uh, a document that says that you are a certificate so well yeah. no that or a you, diagnose an official diagnosis you don't need a diagnosis but also not a certificate that's for good behavior i'm oh, sure in the country has it you need it if you apply for a job for children for instance you don't you don't even need that so if a rapist comes from prison comes out of prison and decides 
he wants uh, to be legally recognized as a woman, he can just go to the city hall and, and get his certificates and get his legal sex changed. 